if you would take your Bibles and go to the book of Acts, chapter 19. If you're visiting with us, you can pull out that black Bible in the chair in front of you and go to page 109 towards the back, page 109, and you'll find Acts 19, verse 21 through 41 we'll look at this morning. If I pass out, Ward is just going to pick up where I left off, so you don't have to worry about me if I the manuscripts right here don't go outside the manuscript now be a good boy thanks for praying for us and my family Acts 19 21 to 41 <clears throat> excuse my snottiness and everything after these things were finished, Paul purposed in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed to Macedonia and Achaia, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. Having sent to Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. And about that time there arose no small disturbance concerning the way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similarity and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. And not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship should even be dethroned from her magnificence. And when they heard this and were filled with rage, they cried out, saying, Great is Artemis to the Ephesians. And the city was filled with the confusion. They rushed with one accord into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, the disciples would not let him. And also some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. So then, some were shouting one thing, some another. The assembly was in confusion. And the majority did not even know for what cause he had come together. Some of the crowd concluded it was Alexander since the Jews had put him forward. And having motion with his hand, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, an outcry arose from them all as he shouted for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And after quieting the multitude, the town clerk said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there after all who doesn't know that the city of the Ephesians is guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of that which fell down from heaven? Since then, these are undeniable facts. You ought to keep calm and to do nothing rash. You brought these men who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. So then, if Demetrius and 
the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against any man the courts are in session and co-counsels are available let them bring charges against one another but if you want anything beyond this you shall be settled in the lawful assembly for indeed we are in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's affair since there's no cause in this connection we shall be unable to account for this disorderly gathering and after saying this he dismissed the assembly quote the church in America is slowly awakening from the distortion of 350 years of dominance and prosperity end quote John Piper said that John Piper and David Mathis just put out a book called Think It Not Strange Navigating Trials in the New America they say this the days of gospel persecution in the United States no longer just hang on the distant horizon. They are already here, at least for some. It's beginning with the bakers, the floors, and photographers. Before long, the consensus may be that faithful biblical exposition is quote-unquote hate speech. However, Christians should not panic, they continue. For 2,000 years, this has been what it has meant to identify with Christ in the world. The normal experience of those who follow a man who was crucified. Suffering for the gospel was not just tolerated in the early church. It was expected. Peter learned the lesson in Acts 4 and again in Acts 5. Then Stephen was stoned in Acts 7 after Acts 3. Only three of the books remaining 25 chapters have no mention of persecution. It's almost like every week as we're going through the book of Acts, I keep mentioning opposition, 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 opposition. Because the gospel brings opposition. In a blog they say this, in an introduction to the book for many of us who are slowly awakening from the dream world of American cultural Christianity God's word fills us with a longing not to be domesticated comfort seeking entertainment addicted prosperity loving security craving approval desiring Christians we don't want to be that it's abominable to us to be that we don't want to waste our lives just fitting in do you long for not fitting in it's hard it's hard when you face opposition to the gospel it's hard when somebody calls you a blank 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 nutcase do you long to not be comfort seeking do we long to not be prosperity loving in the midst of a prosperity loving America I mean this is a part of our culture it's hard it's difficult that's why in Acts the, the, the motivation and the encouragement to us is just to do it just to be who we are let God use us to fulfill us let God use us to fulfill his mission and as we come to this portion in Acts 
but be prepared. This mission may be threatening. The mission that God has called us to may be threatening. We have to be ready. We have to be prepared. As you know very well, watching the news here and there, we're already being the minority. You're accused of bigotry. You're accused of being prejudiced. You're accused of being narrow-minded. And friends, this is just the beginning. If we are going to be used by God to proclaim this gospel, if we're going to be used by God to fulfill His mission, we have to be prepared. This mission may be threatening. Here, I'll put it in a statement. We must realize that this mission God uses us to fulfill may be a threat to the very fabric of our society because His gospel message radically revolutionizes people religiously, economically, socially, civically. So be prepared. Be alert. When you're talking about the gospel, when we speak about the truth of Jesus Christ, that, that alters people in the way they spend their money, their beliefs and practices, their, their social life, their very culture. When the gospel is proclaimed, and when people embrace Christ, there are religious economic, social, and civil ramifications. Some of those are positive, and some of those are negative. The gospel poses itself as a threat to religious beliefs and practices, as well as social, economic, and the civil life of the populace. Because we, we tell people, this is what Jesus says. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Let her deny herself, take up her cross and follow me. And then the thing that they'll come back with you is they'll say, well, that's your interpretation. What? what? It's not my interpretation. You just read it for what it says. So that way they can pull out of that. So that way they can pull out of that truth. And then they'll say you're a bigot and you're narrow-minded. But listen, be encouraged. Never underestimate the power of God in the gospel. It has the potential revolutionizing the life and culture of a city and the surrounding region. It can affect beliefs, practices, social interaction, and business so much. Be warned, though. Your life may be threatened. And as we think about us being proclaimers of God's truth, not only are we hit with the reality that our lives may be threatened as we proclaim this gospel, but then we also have the question for our own hearts. Has my life been revolutionized? In what areas of my life does it need to change? Or, or have we settled for mediocrity? 
Have we settled for, I don't want the gospel to affect that area of my life. I don't want the gospel to affect that part. Social media, Facebook, I don't want it to affect that. I don't want it to affect what I do with my wallet. I don't want it to affect what I do with my time. I don't want it to affect any of those things. It's a challenge for us. So let's start first in verse 21, how Paul resolved in the Holy Spirit. It says, purpose in the Holy Spirit. Some of your versions have a little S. Some have a big S. It seems like he's talking about the Holy Spirit. Paul purposed in the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem after he passed to Macedonia and Achaia. And then he finally would go to Rome. He, he wanted to return to establish, to establish those church, the established churches and strengthen the Christians. And going to Rome was a part of God's divine plan for him, as we'll see later on in the book of Acts. So Luke's kind of uh, uh, given us a, a foretaste of what's going to happen in the future part of Acts and what he's writing. And the mob riot that's going to happen in this next session, section, that's going to confirm it was time for Paul to move on. So notice it says in 22, he sent, sends Timothy and Erastus to those who ministered and served him. He sent them to Macedonia ahead. And the question some people ask, why Jerusalem? Possibly to deliver a help from the Gentile Christians which he's spoken about in 2 Corinthians but Luke doesn't deal with that, those details Luke's uh, uh, preparing his readers for what's going to come later on in Acts and, and Luke wants to show us the impact of Paul proclaiming the gospel and the impact of when we proclaim the gospel which moves us right into verse 23 which we see the first point Christianity as a potential threat Verse 23, And about that time there arose no small disturbance concerning the way. It was a big deal. The radical response of Christians in Ephesus. Remember how we looked at that last week? It caused many of the people of Ephesus to become concerned about their trade for gods and goddesses. Artemis in particular, which we'll speak about her in a moment. It was no small disturbance. Now, it wasn't Paul per se, him personally. It was what he was proclaiming. And really what happened to those that he proclaimed this message to. It, it was transforming people religiously. It was transforming people emotionally, economically, socially, civically. It was, it was just changing the way they looked at life. So Christianity can come across as a potential threat, revolutionizing, first, number one, economic status. Or your wallet. 24 to 25, for a certain man named Demetrius. He was a silversmith, made silver shrines of Artemis. He was bringing no little business to the craftsmanship. In other words, it was a lucrative business. They would make these silver shrines small temple replicas of Artemis. And given the fact it seems like he was a leader amongst the group of silversmiths, he didn't want his means to some serious bank to all of a sudden blow away. 
That's why he says in 25, he gathered together the workmen of similarity. He said, man, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. We're making some good money here, guys. Artemis, who is she? Let me speak, take a few moments to speak about her. She was a major goddess in Ephesus. She was the goddess of fertility. The mistress of wild beasts. A virgin who helped women in childbirth. She was a huntress with bow and arrow. You see pictures of her, whatever statutes with bow and arrow. She was also known as the goddess of death. They found idols and it shows a grotesque female figure which would be inappropriate for me to say in our mix gathering together here. She received her name because she made the people Artemis, which means safe and sound. Ephesus was the major site of worship of her in Asia, in Asia Minor, all that surrounding area. People took seriously the worshiping of their idols, especially her. So much so they had cult prostitutes around. Her temple, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, had 60 foot pillars. It was 425 feet by 225 feet, larger than a football field. The largest building in the Greek world. One of the most widely followed cults in the Greco-Roman world. They would actually have a week-long festival in the spring in honor of Artemis. Also known as, uh, for the Romans, as Diana. So these shrines was their business. And business was good. So not only do the implications of true conversion affect the one converted, it impacts those who depend on the sale of certain things for their own livelihood. They wanted that money. And they were losing business. People were letting go of those idols. And they liked the change coming in to their pockets, Demetrius and his workmen friends. So he gathered them together and he gave his pep talk. Let me sum it up for you. First important thing is our money. Second important thing, Paul's vast influence that God's made by hands are fake. Third, our civic pride, our religious pride of Artemis. The temple is going to become as nothing. Our trade is going to become in disrepute, discredited. She is deposed, blah, 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 blah. So notice, to what did Demetrius first appeal? Their wallets. Christianity had become a powerful threat to their business of making some good dough. You know that our prosperity depends upon this business, friends. So first, economic status, or their wallets. Number two, religious loyalty. Verse 26 and then into verse 27. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but almost in all of Asia, this, Paul is persuaded and turned away. A considerable number of people saying that God's made with hands are no gods at all. In verse 27, that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship should be dethroned. 
from her magnificence. Everybody worships Artemis. So we can't let this happen. So use loyalty to Artemis as a way to bully the Christians. Everybody believes this. Nobody believes what you believe. That's a stupid, foolish view. Even the same thing happens to us today. People bully Christians because the beliefs of Christians don't match up with their own beliefs. That's flat out bigotry. They accuse us of bigotry? No. This is the other way around. Because our beliefs don't match up with their own. They just completely and totally disregard us. And then they bully. You know, it takes courage to stand up for the truth when the majority are against you. God gives us grace to do it. And that's how He can bring about a major transformation in people's lives. He gives us grace to do that. So you have their wallets economically. Number two, religiously. The gospel revolutionizes things and it comes across as a threat. Economically, religiously. Number three, socially. Social community, verse 27. The first part, and not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute. In other words, we are a connected community of tradesmen. This is our social fabric. This is us being together. Our trade will go away. So business and social connection. The truth of the gospel will touch the social life of people too. Who they hang out with. Who they're connected to. What they put on social media. The scary part is what some people will put on their Facebook page. The gospel is threatening because it can revolutionize what people spend. It revolutionizes their beliefs and practices. It revolutionizes their social connection and community. And number four, it revolutionizes their civil dignity. Also, verse 27, actually religious loyalty and civil pride are mixed here together. That the temple of great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and the world worships should be dethroned from her, from her magnificence. The great temple of Artemis is here in our city. This is our God. She belongs to us. She's going to be dethroned and she's pride to us as Ephesians. Notice that when they start shouting, they don't say greatest Artemis. They say greatest Artemis of the Ephesians. So there's religious loyalty and civil pride. All of Asia and the whole world worships worships her. We're known for this because it's our cultural identification. Friends, Christianity will change people's culture to what? To have a culture of Jesus Christ. 
There is no American culture. For us, not culture of South America or South Africa or Bulgaria or Russian. No, that's not our culture. Our culture is Jesus Christ. The gospel is our culture. So Christianity was not disturbing the peace, but they thought it was. And this is unjust. But realize that the message of the gospel transforms people religiously, socially, economically, and culturally. The gospel brings ramifications to people in their beliefs, social structure, their wallets, wallets and civic life, their culture. And interesting too, we learn this not from Paul. We learn this from a non-believer. This is Demetrius saying this. He didn't even believe the gospel. Had no, no mind to do so either. And we learn these principles from his perspective of what's happening to the people that live within his city. We learn that converts go from being a, a friend of the world to a friend of God. From loving the things of this world to loving God. God used Paul to proclaim you must turn from idols to serve the one and only true God. And if you're here this morning you don't serve and worship the one true God this message is for you God should judge us we are sinners and yet he's gracious and compassionate and his arms are wide open that sinners would repent and put their trust in Jesus Christ alone who lived died and rose on behalf of sinners that's the gospel So Christianity can change, potentially change the culture of a city because the whole fabric of a person's life is altered and revolutionized. What they buy, what they hang out with, what they do with their time. Has the gospel affected us in that way? Has the gospel infected us in that way? Get a breather. Okay. So you have the gospel coming across, Christianity coming across as a potential threat, revolutionizing these different areas of their life. So what ends up being the negative result? The negative result of the gospel is that we're the enemy. enemy because after his pep talk after he brings out his perspective of what he sees happening with the people in his own city he gathers around these tradesmen with himself starting in 28 they, were, they heard this and they were filled with anger 
And they cried out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They're filled with anger and pride to defend their money. I mean, their lovely goddess. And they had a procession that took place, ending up in the theater. Notice, they rushed with one accord into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. The theater uh, held 25,000 people. Now, we don't know if 25,000 people were there, but it was a big theater. They dragged Paul's working partners with them. Notice in verse 30, Paul wanted to go into the assembly. The disciples would not let him. They didn't want him to do that. Good move, guys. He had to persuade him not to do that. Notice uh, in 31, And also some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him repeatedly urged him not to venture to the theater. Asiarchs were the, the, the civic rulers of Ephesus. The leading men, the upper class guys. Paul had an influence even with these guys. They were his friends. And it doesn't say that they were believers. It just says that they were his friends and even they told him, Paul, don't go in there. Notice how the city was just filled with confusion. What's going on? The situation has become chaotic. This was no town meeting. It was a riot. These guys got the whole city fired up. Look, it shows how pervasive and successful gospel proclamation was. So as people were shouting one thing, they're shouting another in verse 32. The assembly was in confusion. The majority had no idea why it was. So what are we here for? I don't know. It's, hey, all right. Maybe we're going to hand out free hot dogs. Hey, all right. People were present when they had no idea why they were there. People were mixed up and confounded. All these different views were being expressed. And everyone was like, huh? And then you have here in verse 33, which is, is very obscure. But some of the crowd concluded it was Alexander. Actually, the word concluded means taught or instructed. So it's kind of odd. What is Luke trying to say here? It seems like the idea is some instructed Alexander about what's going on. And he goes forward in order to address the crowd. It seems that Jews put him forward to give a defense. In other words, look, this is a Christian thing, it's not a Jewish thing. Maybe that's what was going on. So it's hard to tell. Whatever happened, Notice it says in verse 34, when they recognized he was a Jew, an outcry arose from them all as they shouted for two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They saw the Jews as part of the problem too. So they didn't care. They just, for two hours, can you imagine, for two hours, can you imagine this, like, you know, in our day and age of, of video footage? Can you just, I was just thinking about that this week, you know, if... You have the news coverage, you know, CNN, and ABC News, Fox News, they're all like showing this for two hours. What do you think there, Billy? Well, you know, I've been here since 7 o'clock this morning. It'd be interesting to see how it, was, it would be portrayed on TV. For two hours they're shouting this. 
the appeal of emotion can be very powerful, can it? Here is the reality. The negative result of being a Christian is that people will think you're really weird. You're a nutcase. An enemy to be disposed. Are we ready for this? Are we prepared and equipped? I'll I'll admit to you, when, when I get any type, just a little bit of persecution, I crumble. I get so discouraged and depressed. Maybe you're not like me. Maybe for you, you're just like, hey, all right. Not me. I don't feel that way. I just feel like an, an idiot. So I go crawl under a table. This is the reality. Christianity can pose itself as a threat because it revolutionizes people's lives. And the negative result of the gospel is that people think of us as enemies. But... but Look, Christianity though, or Christians, we're not really a threat. We're not. And praise God for this town clerk. Praise God for the quote-unquote town clerks of our day. He was very wise. Steps in to quell the rioting mob, pacifying the situation before they really started going crazy. Town clerk was the highest civic official, uh, operated like a city manager. He was the city's liaison to the Romans of Roman rule. Uninformed about Christianity, but notice how God used him to stop the situation. He reviewed their beliefs brought a proposition, gave them evidence, appealed to them, then dismissed the crowd. His speech was successfully brilliant. Notice how he begins. Quieting the multitude. He said, men of Ephesus, what man is there after all? Who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and the image which fell down from heaven? What's he saying? Everybody knows about Artemis. Everybody knows about her power, her relationship to us in Ephesus. So why are you getting all worked up? Notice he says in verse 36, So then, since these are undeniable facts, was he ignorant? Yes. But notice how God used him to bring peace. God used him to tell the people, keep calm. Don't do anything you're going to regret. Chillax. You ought to keep calm. 4, verse 37. He brought these men who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. They're not temple robbers. They're not blaspheming our goddess. There's no, no physical act has been done or committed in reference to a crime. Notice how those who loved Artemis, he persuaded them. These guys haven't broken any laws. He's going to say a couple verses, but if we keep going, we're going to be the ones breaking laws. Friend, there's a lesson for us to learn here. It's important 
for us not to make fun of other people's beliefs. As a matter of fact, we could, should, take a little bit of time to understand their beliefs. Not, not, not so we can learn in the sense of, well, maybe Christianity and your beliefs coincide. No. But to show our care for them as a person and their right to hold those beliefs. They have every right to believe that. Now, are they wrong? Yes, they are. That's the rub. Is that we would say, biblical Christianity is the only truth. Because Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We believe they're wrong. And they are wrong. But we also believe, especially if we're Baptist. Baptist, you take the acrostic Baptist, B-A-P-T-I-S-T-S. The I stands for individual soul liberty. What that means is we believe that someone of their own volition will embrace the gospel. We don't make people do it. We don't make people converts. They choose to believe the gospel of their own volition. And we could even state a case, friends, that the very fabric of our nation was founded based upon the principles that Baptists have believed historically for practically 500 years. And we stand on the shoulders of our forefathers who wrote about liberty of conscience that people believe of their own volition. And we, we persuade them. It doesn't mean we don't try to persuade them. We give them the gospel. But we don't force anybody. And they have every right to believe that, friend. It's vital for us to accurately represent what others believe. That shows respect for people and the right they have to believe what they believe. It may even give us a window to proclaim the truth. No, does it mean that we just let them rant and rave and rant and rave and rant and rave? Daniel and I have experienced that. Michael and I, you talk with people, Jerome, they'll just blah, 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 blah. You know, you're like, wow, this is a long time. You know, talking about this, you know. We listen. And it's exercising discernment. Yes, I understand that. But do we care about the person? Do we respect them as a person? It, it gives us a principle to learn here. Well, anyways, going back to our text here in 38. If Demetrius and the craftsmen are with them, they have a complaint against any man. The courts are in session. Both councils are available. Let them bring charges against one another. That's what the courts are for. They're in session. Bring the charges. They can appeal to proconsuls for justice. They can settle the matters legally. If you have a legal complaint, that's what you're supposed to do. And then he says, 39, if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in the lawful assembly. Look, if you want something beyond this personal case, then go to the regular assembly. The judging assembly. You must do this because of the risk of rioting for no legal cause. 
which could prove to be detrimental to the whole city of Ephesus, notice 40, were in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's affairs, since there's no cause in this connection, we shall be unable to account for this disorderly gathering. They could bring charges against us. This is a chaotic, disturbing, unjust public meeting. That's not how you bring these charges against these guys, men of Ephesus. You do it in a lawful assembly. If they've broken a law, that's how you do it. But if you keep going down this road, they're not going to be the ones breaking the law. We're going to be the ones breaking the law. Paul will be in danger. Aristarchus, Gaius will be in danger. We will. They have not done anything by which they could be charged with a particular crime. The great part is proclaiming the gospel is free. It's free. There's no charge. You have to worry about having to do something to do that. No, you just can proclaim the gospel. You have the freedom to do that. At least in this country. What is he saying here? He's saying that if you guys keep going, Rome could step in and limit our privileges, even taking away their freedom as a city. It will not be us who are the lawbreakers. Friends, it will be our persecutors. Which is why it's so important. I think it's rather interesting in parentheses I'm saying this it'll be, it'll be interesting for us because after we're done with Acts we're going to start in 1 Peter being weirdos I think that's going to be the title of, of the book Some like, something like that uh, John Piper and I think they talked about that how we're weirdos in this society it's so vitally important for us to live Lives that are pleasing to the Lord so that what happens is that we're not coming across as the lawbreakers. Our persecutors come across as the lawbreakers. They're the ones that get accused, not us. 41, after saying this, he dismissed the assembly. This level-headed ruler who saw the Christians were not breaking any laws or causing a disturbance dismiss the crowd go home go home or we'll face dire consequences so let's sum it up the gospel can transform a culture of a community to such an extent that the community gets nervous and reacts to stop the transformation those who don't want to be changed will react with hostility toward those whose lifestyle has been altered necessarily like that uh, but as followers of Jesus Christ we can simply allow our changed lifestyle to speak for itself as we speak with our lips the new life Jesus can bring as we do this we can trust God to protect us and give us the grace in the midst of opposition that's what we can do we just allow our changed lifestyle to speak as we speak the gospel. And then we just trust God to protect us. I mean, what's the worst they can do? 
kill us? If they kill you, you just go to be with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's actually the best thing they can do. What do you think about it? So notice how this challenges us in our evangelism. When you're doing evangelism, this challenges us. Instead of merely inviting someone to church, not to say that's a bad thing, but we give them the gospel. Instead of a, a quick encounter, we take the time to relate, to connect, and be personally involved with somebody. Instead of using some emotional appeal, you must come forward, walk the aisle, come on. We disciple people into the truth. Sometimes I've given the gospel once, twice, ten, twenty, fifty, a hundred times. And you teach them the gospel. You teach them the truth. No, there needs to be a sustained gospel effort in the lives of people so they can hear truth and they can see it lived out before them. We do this so they can see true biblical Christianity. It's no threat. It's no threat at all. And realize we're becoming more and more of a threat to our society because we can revolutionize what people buy, who people hang out with, their practices, their culture. Has the gospel made an impact upon us in this way? Do we want to see our lives turned upside down? Are we ready to follow hard after Christ? Does His grace, His compassion, His kindness, His mercy towards us, does it motivate us and prompt us and encourage us in the way we live our lives? That's the motivation, His grace. Not because we have to, but His grace, His compassion, His kindness, and His love. That's what motivates us. Let me end with this. About 112 AD, there was the governor of Bithynia Pontus. His name was Pliny the Younger. He wrote a letter to the emperor, Emperor Trajan. He didn't know how to deal with Christians. And, and there's much more I can give you, but l let me just read to you what he wrote about them. What Pliny said about them. They pledged not to commit any crime such as fraud, theft, adultery. But they threatened the endurance of temple and religious festivals because the temple and religious festivals were being deserted. Interesting. The perspective of the unsaved, of the way we live our lives. It, it can come across as a threat, but it, it's, there's really no threat. Father, give us grace. As a people have been changed in what we buy, what we say what we do 
our social interactions. Our practices, our culture. As we see how much you love us in Jesus Christ. Keep transforming us, we pray. And then also, Father, use us realizing that we may come across as a threat. But help us to just trust that you will protect us. And we'll just live holy lives. And we'll speak this gospel good news. Even though they'll think we're weirdos. Continue to take a few moments of silence to ponder what we've seen in God's Word. After a few moments, we'll do our time of giving. We'll sing our last two songs.